Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to On Trial, starring Mark Radlich. Also starring John Comer. Hope you're ready, Hollywood, because you're on trial. All rise. Court is now in session. The Honorable Judge Fudge presiding. This is On Trial, and tonight I am your defense attorney, Mr. Mark Rattledge, the mandate reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified. And the film that we'll be putting on trial tonight is The Godfather. Oh, wait, no, not that Godfather. Uh, The movie, The Godfather, part three. Prosecuting this uh, cinematic wonder is my co-host with the most, Mr. Sean Comey. You're not. How you doing, Sean? Ghost of Tom Hagen for the prosecution, sir, because fuck George Hamilton, and I couldn't come up with a good, with a good prosecutor for this week. <laughs> also, well also, done. I'm on, also, I'm on my second drink of the night. All right. Sorry for the uh, momentary late start. I was uh, involved in important proceedings and uh when i realized what time it was i literally had to like run to the computer and then the computer had to remember what the internet was <laughs> oh it's okay it's okay judgey oh fudgy uh fuck even in the future nothing works anyway uh <laughs> bye everybody <laughs> let's get into this uh sean why don't you do your thing here. Give us some notes on the third part of the Godfather trilogy, or what has been known as the epilogue to what is the two-part story of the Godfather, or so the wiki tells me. Yes, yes. Also known as the thing that should not be. (laughs) The first two movies split Mario Puzo's original, to be honest, somewhat ill-received novel up into, for the most part, two sections. The first movie takes place in what would be the present day of the book. And the second intersperses the aftermath of the first movie's present day events with adaptations of the book's flashback to the rise of a young Vito Corleone, uh, or Vito Andolini, as he was known then, uh, in freshly after having arrived in New York City himself. So this has absolutely no basis whatsoever within the source material. Don't look for it, except for maybe the mention of the odd character here and there. As a matter of fact, Francis Ford Coppola was 100% against making this. Uh, he believed, rightfully so, that the first two movies tied up the Corleone saga pretty damn neatly. However, unfortunately, 1982's One from the Heart went over financially like a turd in a punch bowl, and all of a sudden he was willing to listen to Paramount Pictures a whole lot more closely. (laughs) Fuck you, Paramount Pictures. Seriously. As it stands, they were able to bring back the likes of Al Pacino, Diane Keaton, and Talia Shire to respectfully reprise their roles of Michael Corleone, his estranged wife Kay, well at this point, not in his words, his ex-wife Kay, and and Michael's sister Connie. They offered Robert Duvall a chance to come back, but he refused to take part unless they put his salary on a pedestal beside Pacino's. In fact, he remarked during an episode of Inside the Actors Studio that he would have been fine if they had, if they had been paying Pacino double what they paid him. 
but instead they were paying Al three to four times that. So, nope, gone. So with him out, uh, Francis Ford Coppola rewrote the part of the story to conveniently have uh, prior longtime Corleone family conciliary Tom Hagen die before the story even begins. And that's why George Hamilton steps in as uh, B.J. Harrison, Hagen's replacement. And Coppola wasn't thrilled with it. He remarked that it actually felt incomplete to make it without Duval there. And evidently his story would have had Hagen heading up the Corleone charities. But Robert said uh, sometime circa 2010 that he ultimately wasn't the least bit sorry that he turned the role down. Now, I should backtrack a little bit. I should say there's almost no basis in the story material, in the source material for this movie because Dean Reisner did base his screenplay on a Mario Puzo story. It was which was intended to center on Corleone's son, Anthony, who, was, who at the time was a CIA naval officer, um, becoming wrapped up in a plot to assassinate a troublesome Central American despot. But fortunate, somewhat fortunately, virtually none of that carried over to the last film except for one scene, and that's the break-in at Vincent's house. Otherwise, a few other interesting, interesting notes. For those of you who to this day bemoan the involvement of Sofia Coppola, look, they tried every other fucking avenue they could to avoid it, Okay. In fact, the role was originally to be played by Julia Roberts. However, she couldn't mesh her schedule up with the production and had to bow out. Madonna wanted to step in. Coppola said, nah, lady, you're too old. Uh, Rebecca Schaefer was tragically murdered before she could make it to her scheduled audition. Winona Ryder uh, bowed out at the very last possible minute, and... In the end, Sophia stepped in for, fun fact, her third appearance in a Godfather movie. That's right. As an infant, she doubled as Michael Corleone's infant nephew in the first movie during the baptism murder montage sequence. And she also shows up in a bit background background. Okay, I was wondering what happened there. My phone spontaneously reset. Well, that explains that. All righty. Sean will be back with us in just a moment. Uh, good stuff. Let's see here. All right, so the original line there dropped. Uh, so last night we had technical difficulties on the Metal Hammer of Doom because Block Talk Radio was having server problems. At least it's not that this time. Yay! <laughs> uh, let's see. While we wait for Sean, what do we listen to? What do we got going on here? Uh, well, Sean dials back in. Uh, let's see here. All right, back on. I'll dial in momentarily. Sounds good, Sean. Doesn't it all be nice to have a penis? <laughs> I, I one wanted to make sure my soundboard actually did work too. I never get tired of hearing that. 
All right, we should have Sean any minute now. Fun fact about uh, the Godfather movies and my experience with them. I actually never saw the Godfather Part 3 until we decided to do this podcast. Uh, My good friend Chuck, uh, about 20 years ago maybe, sat me down and told me that before I saw another movie, I had to watch the first two Godfather movies. I said, what about the third one? And he said, yeah, nobody likes that one. So um, I did. I, I did watch them. And we probably would have done the entire trilogy on Long Road to Ruin had we kept doing that podcast. But, um, you know, we just it, the, the show didn't last long enough for us to ever get to it. Uh, and so it, it's actually pretty funny that we get to that we're doing The Godfather Part three now. And it's given me an opportunity to actually watch the movie. But, yeah, all three I've only seen once. One time. Speaking of one time, hi, Sean. And that, friends, is why when a one-legged Frenchman asks you in broken Portuguese, so what would you really do for a Klondike bar, you never, ever answer, no, I'm serious, anything. Anyway, (laughs) so getting back, so, yeah, about Sofia Coppola. Um, in The Godfather Part Two, she had a small walk-on part as a little immigrant girl who is milling about in the scene where a nine-year-old Vito Corleone has first set foot on, is first arriving at Ellis Island as a small child on the run. So, yeah, there's the acknowledgement of the goddamn nepotism, which I'm sure we probably haven't heard the last of. Of course I'd know, because I'm prosecuting this damn thing. Uh, ultimately, despite the fact that Coppola was trying to tell a story of some substance about a good man ultimately losing his, losing his soul without ever really fully paying for his sins, this was by... Many, not all regards, a flop. Uh, Granted, Rotten Tomatoes was not a thing back then, but at present it has a less than impressive 67% ranking based on 57 critical reviews. Over on Metacritic, it has an average score of 60 based on on 19 reviews tending to range somewhere between mixed and average. And yes, most of them are indeed focused on Sofia Coppola's acting, uh, convoluted plot, and it's just utter disposability. That being said, the number most commonly also associated with this film, remarkably, seven. As in, seven Oscar nominations which includes Best Picture, Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Andy Garcia, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, Best Art Decoration, Art Direction Set Decoration, Best Mute, and uh, Best Original Song for John Bettis and Carmine Coppola's Promise Me You'll Remember. As far as the box, off, as far as the box office goes, eh, it was a, I guess you would call it a modest hit, fifty-four million dollar budget with a with an ungodly hundred and sixty-two minute running time, made hundred thirty-six point eight million dollars. So it might have been regarded as a disappointment today, but back then, eh, it was a movie worth making, and but. All total, when you have when you have a cast that consists of Al Pacino, Diane Keaton, Talia Shire, Andy Garcia, e- Eli Wallach, Joe Mantegna, Bridget Fonda, George Hamilton, and yes, Little Coppola, you ultimately have a movie that can't really go entirely wrong. It's just that it's still one that for a lot of reasons I'm sure Francis would rather forget. All right. I'm going to do my best. This took two tries to get through. Um, Two nights, I should say. I I watched half of it one night and half of it the next night. Um, (laughs) I'm going to do my best here. 
to try to whip through this plot synopsis. I, I, I actually toyed with the idea of not doing one and let's just get to the, the prosecution, but I'm a sucker for structure. So that's what, that's what we do next on this podcast. So let, let's just barrel through this thing. Um, and I'm going to, I'm really going to lean much more on the Wikipedia page more than I do. So on the other ones, usually I am well-versed enough in the, the, the plot points to, um, to barrel through without having to lean on the Wikipedia. I, <laughs> as I, I, I don't want to say as the defense attorney, this was a bit of a slog to get through. And a lot of it, I, I wasn't really able to retain, but it was a slog to get through, and a lot of it didn't didn't really reach me. Um, but God damn it, <laughs> this man didn't murder her, Your Honor. So I'm going to prove it. Here we go. 1979. Michael Corleone approaches 60. He's racked with guilt over the, his ruthless rise to power, especially so having ordered Fredo's assassination. He donates part of his tremendous wealth in charitable acts. Michael and Kay are divorced. The children, Anthony and Mary live with Kay at the reception following a ceremony in St. Patrick's old cathedral in Michael's honor. Anthony tells his father that he is leaving law school to become an opera singer, but dad, I want to be in show business. Kay supports his decision, but Michael wants Anthony to either complete his law degree or join the family business like you do. Michael and Kay have an uneasy reunion. Kay reveals that she and Anthony know the truth about Fredo's death. Vincent arrives at the reception he is embroiled in a feud with Joey Zaza, 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 When Connie arranges for Vincent to meet Zaza, who calls Vincent a bastard, Vincent bites Zaza's ear. Michael is both troubled by Vincent's fiery temper and impressed by his loyalty. When a man bites another man's ear, that's when you know he can be trusted. With what? I have no idea. He agrees to include him as his lieutenant in the business. Knowing that Archbishop Gilday, head of the Vatican Bank, has accumulated a massive deficit, Michael offers the bank $600 million in exchange for shares in international, international, an international real estate company, which would make him its largest single shareholder with six seats on the company's 13-member board. He makes a tender offer to buy the Vatican's 25% share in the company, which will give him controlling interest. Immobile's board quickly approved the offer pending ratification by the Pope. Uh, Don Altabello, an elderly New York mafia boss and Connie's godfather, tells Michael that his partners on the commission want in on the, on the Immobile's deal. Michael wants the deal untainted by mafia involvement and pays off the mob bosses from the sale of his Las Vegas holdings. Zaza receives nothing and declaring Michael his enemy storms out. Altabello follows Zaza, saying he will reason with him, and minutes later, everyone's shot by a helicopter. Moving on. Um, most of the bosses are killed, but Michael and Vince, Michael, Vincent, and Michael's bodyguard, Al Neri, escape. Neri tells Michael that the surviving mob bosses made deals with Zaza. Michael thinks Zaza isn't smart enough to mastermind the massacre, and realizes that Altabello is the traitor, suffers a diabetic stroke, and is hospitalized. What timing? As Michael recuperates, Vincent and Mary begin a romantic relationship. It should be noted they are cousins. Yuck. Uh, while Neri and Connie give Vincent permission to retaliate against Zaza. During a street festival hosted by Zaza's Italian-American civil rights group, Vincent kills Zaza. Michael berates Vincent for his actions and insists that Vincent end his relationship with Mary because they're cousins. Yuck. Explaining Vincent's involvement in the family's criminal enterprises endangers her life. Yeah, that too. Did I mention yuck? Yuck. Let's move on. The family go to Sicily for Anthony's operatic debut in Palermo at the Teatro Massimo and stay with Don Tomasino. Michael tells Vincent to pretend to defect from the Corleone family in order to spy on Altabello. Altabello introduces Vincent to Don Lucio Lucchesi a powerful Italian political figure and Immobile's chairman. Michael discovers that the Immobile's deal is an elaborate swindle, conspired by Lucchesi, Gilde, and the Vatican accountant, Frederick Keinzig. Michael visits Cardinal Lamberto, favored to become the next pope to discuss the deal. Lamberto persuades Michael to make his, final, his first confession in 30 years. Michael tearfully confesses that he ordered Fredo's murder, and Lambranto says that Michael deserves to suffer, but can be redeemed. 
Altabello hires Mosca, a veteran hitman, to assassinate Michael. Mosca and his son disguised as priest killed Don Tomasino as he returns to his villa. When Michael and Kay talk Sicily, Michael asks for Kay's forgiveness, and they admit they still love each other. Aww. Michael receives word of Tomasino's death and at the funeral vows never to sin again. After the Pope dies, Cardinal Limbelto is elected as Pope John Paul I, and the Immobilier deal is to be ratified. The plotters against the ratification attempt to cover their tracks. Vincent tells Michael that Altabello is plotting to have Mosca assassinate Michael. Michael sees that his nephew is a changed man and names him the new Don of the Corleano Corleano family, telling him to adopt the Corleone name. Vincent ends his romance with Mary. And as I recall in the movie, she does not take it well. The family sees Anthony's performance in Cavalleria Rusticana, in Palermo, while Vincent exacts his revenge. Uh, Kainzig is abducted by Vincent's men, who smother and then hang him from a bridge, like you do, making his death look like a suicide. Don Altabello at the opera is given poison... (laughs) Poor bastard. Is given a poison cannoli by Connie, who watches him die from her opera box. Calo, Tomasino's former bodyguard, meets with Don Lucchesi at his office, claiming to bear a message from Michael, and as he whispers to Calo, stares Lucchesi in the neck with his own spectacle, like you do. The Pope is served poison tea by Archbishop Gilday and dies after he approves the Immobilaire deal. Al Neri travels to the Vatican, where he shoots Archbishop Gilday. Armed with a sniper rifle at the Opera House during Anthony's performance, Mosca kills three of Vincent's men, but is unable to aim at Michael, and attempting to shoot Michael outside the Opera House, he kills Mary. Uh, Mostly for her acting in the movie. No, just kidding. Vincent kills Mosca. Michael cradles Mary and screams in agony. Years years later, an elderly Michael sits alone in the garden of Don Tomasino's villa and suddenly slumps over in his chair, falling to the ground. All right. Let the prosecution commence their case. Hit it, brother. <clears throat> Thank you, Fudgy. You know, I've frequently said about other movies, hey, this would have actually been good if you hadn't tried to tack it on to the end of another franchise just to try to make a few more bucks off of said property's name value. I can't even say that about this movie. Even if it had stood alone, it would have been a weak, twisting story that is sometimes, even I have to admit, damn tricky to keep track of and really takes too many detours in order to become adequately invested in just about anything you see. As it is, credit where it's due, the performances really aren't half bad, but then again, look back on that cast list that I rattled off at the top. With the exception of Sofia Coppola, it's like praising Michael Jordan for hitting a free throw. You almost expect it, and yet, even then, while the performances are about as solid as you would expect, it's still pretty damn pretty damn underwhelming for that kind of star power and it's not exactly groundbreaking or memorable with the exception of Al Pacino's famous line every time I think I'm out they pull me back in that's about it you ask most people what they remember the Godfather part 3 for dollars to donuts they're going to rattle off one of or some combination of three things that line that bullshit with the assault helicopter, and Sofia Coppola bleeding out. That's about it. And maybe, maybe outside chance, you get somebody who points out recalling Michael just slumping over in his chair and dying as the last memory memory of the Godfather trilogy, and possibly that person recalling thinking, that's it. That's all. That's that's how it ends. All these Academy Award nominations, all these accolades, uh, the 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 eternal good graces of the AFI, landmark performances that made and defined careers. 
and that's it. We're just going to get an elderly, kind of bloated Al Pacino just falling, just falling over dead. I mean, come on, Luca Brasi at least voided his bowels. But really, that's a theme of the entire movie, is the fact that you have a bunch of people behind this who are capable of utterly outstanding work, including Francis Ford Coppola, I mean, especially Coppola. And yet, I mean, maybe you could blame it on just his emotional exhaustion after making Apocalypse Now, the fact that he was never really all that invested in it in first place, except for except for going, oh shit, I really need to fill in this crater where all the money was. But what feels like it would almost be a promising start for a new director, or even just something respectable for someone who's coming at this from the middle of the road. From Coppola, you just sit there kind of puzzled and go, the hell happened? Right up until you read up on the production notes and you kind of understand. You really get a feel for what was going on in his head when you realize that, yeah, yeah, Paramount Pictures had to make him an offer he couldn't refuse. God, part of my soul dies a little bit for forcing that reference, but let's just move on. <laughs> the nicest thing I can say about this movie is that because it's so unnecessary, because it had no loose ends to really tie up, if I had to compare it to anything, I would compare it to these these silly rumors I keep I keep hearing from TV fans that oh there was an eighth season of Dexter you know what and it ends with him becoming a lumberjack or the idea that there was this wild ninth season of Scrubs after JD walked away from Sacred Heart for the last time because I mean hey. I mean, the, the second to last season ended everything perfectly. I mean, said all that it really needed to say. It would have been a fine place to just go ahead and leave off. With, I mean, in Dexter's case, it ended, oddly enough, exactly where the first novel ended. So there you have it. You could have just called it a day right there, and it would have probably been, albeit not a great season, but... Uh, a decent season to go out on. Scrubs, hey, you walk away with everybody perfectly fa- perfectly happy. Elliot, Elliot and J.D. are together. J.D. has really learned and grown from his time at from his time at Sacred Heart. He got to really close things out on just the right note note with Dr. Cox. I mean, it was perfect. It was a fine way for the show to end. And so it is here. If you really want to, (laughs) this is a $54 million movie that you would be perfectly fine if you pretended it never, ever existed. You You could watch the first two Godfather movies the same way you watch the first three Indiana Jones movies. As far as you're concerned, that's it. That's where that's where it ends. Because those first two movies at least had a soul to them. They were long movies, but they were long movies that you could remain invested in. Because they aren't just tales of a crime family. They're tales of an American family. Of its rise, its fall, its transformation. It's, it's an immigrant story told in between the two movies pretty much six almost undeniably flawless acts if you were to really divide them up. Three acts per movie, obviously. This movie doesn't have that. You never have that kind of 
emotional investment and resonance of a rich American time period that you had in those other two. No. You you aren't seeing this as a family that was made by an immigrant with nothing rising up in a country that really wasn't quite willing to fully accept his people yet. And but also seeing along the way the price that his family had to pay, both those who chose to remain loyal to the family business and those who wanted no part of it but became collateral damage regardless. So really, yeah, undeniably, this movie is guilty of existing in a world that just doesn't need it, that doesn't want it, and I urge you, ladies and gentlemen of the teriyaki jerky, would be just fine pretending that it never, ever happened. You're with us. First, I I fundamentally disagree with the premise that movies are, are needed or not needed. The prosecution's fine to make that argument. It's just it's one I hear a lot on movie fights. It's one I hear, it, it's one I see a lot uh, when we do the Rotten Tomatoes bit on Damn You Hollywood, and it drives me up the wall because you know air is needed, food is food is needed. Um, t- to a great extent, art is needed. Film is part of art. When you start breaking it down and down and down and down and saying, yes, art is needed, but is that film in particular really needed? Well, none of it's really needed. You won't die if there's no art, but life is less good without it. Less good, ladies and gentlemen. I got all, I know all the good words. My point being, um, I I didn't want to begin my defense of this movie with this, I, I had a I had something else in mind, but I, I cannot let that stand. This movie was made, and it is, and let's let's leave out the word needed. This movie is perfectly fine to be in existence. The first two movies made money. The assumption would be another you know another tryst with this family, uh, with these themes and these ideas would also make money. So why not make the movie? You know, this is like the Transformers movies. Did did we really need another Transformers movie? That's not the question. The question is, will anyone go to another Transformers movie? Will anyone go to another Godfather movie? And seeing as The Godfather Part 3 on a $54 million budget made $136.8 million in the year uh, 1990 and 1991... I think that's that that by itself justifies its existence. But that aside, that's that's not the strongest defense of this movie. That that's a defense just in of movies in general. If if the give them what they want, as Natalie Merchant, the prophet, tells us, right? You know, Natalie Merchant, Ten Thousand Maniacs. Moving on. Um, what I want to say about this movie, I'd like to enter into evidence. Exhibit A, a line, speaking of Rotten Tomatoes, a line from Dan Feinberg's ZapToIt.com review, a uh, fresh review, as it were, gave it a three out of five, that really, you know, makes my point for me, and I think the strongest point about this movie. He says, quote, I think if you can take a step back from the first two movies and if you can ignore the younger Miss Coppola, this is still a more artful and ambitious movie than the industry standard. Yet that was in that was was written in 2005 about a movie made in 1990. You know, and and I think it's a lesson that's very uh, important and timely in 2018. Because here's the thing, we're judged, this movie is unfairly judged against its predecessors. 
it is it is hardly ever, if ever, judged on the merits of its own existence, separate from any of that, from any of the Godfather movies. You know, they they are often regarded as masterpieces, and this one isn't a masterpiece. It's quite good. It's beautifully shot. It's well acted, other than Sofia Coppola, who, look, she's no Jessie from Showgirls, okay? You want to see bad acting. (laughs) You want to see some terrible acting that takes you right out of a movie. You know, good old, good old, I can't remember the actress's real name, Elizabeth Berkley. You know, Elizabeth Berkley from Showgirls is the gold standard of shit acting, right? So on a scale of Elizabeth Berkeley, Sophia Coppola, Sophia Coppola doesn't really rise to that. She's awkward in the movie. Her performance lacks a certain zest, a certain believability. But it wasn't like it wasn't like some of these other movies I've seen where the actor seems to be reading off cue cards. You know, it wasn't porn acting. It, it was perfectly it was perfectly subpar in comparison to the titans she's sharing the screen with. Had this been a Disney movie, by the way, she'd have been just fine. It was about that level. This was about Hey Jesse level, okay? This was about the Descendants level, not the band, the show on Disney. If you're familiar with it, you know what I'm talking about. It's the one where all the Disney villains have kids that go to the same school as the good kids, the good princess kids. A kid loves that show. And the acting is about subpar. So, yeah. So, Sofia Coppola, you are forgiven, in my opinion, for your Disney-level acting. But getting back to the central point here. Andy Garcia, Al Pacino, Diane Keaton, and Talia Shire's there, too, all put on brilliant performances. The movie is beautifully shot. The story it tells when you break it down about a mob, bo- mob boss who's trying to go legitimate and the forces that be won't allow him to do so and the struggles that cause and the tragedy it causes is a fine story and an interesting story to tell. If we're to be honest, maybe the movie suffers from its length its attempt to be epic in scale. But that's not enough for me to say it's, it's a badly made movie. It's just a little long in the tooth, maybe very long in the tooth, depending on your mileage. But either way, it's not a bad movie, and it doesn't deserve the uh, criticism leveled against it because that criticism always stems from the same thing. It's not as good as the first two. I don't think that's fair. To further the point, the measure of a good sequel for my money is whether or not the sequel will stand on its own. There are exceptions to that. Uh, You know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy is one long story broken up into three parts. And so there's arguments to be made and I have made them that, you know, that one or two of those movies might've been able to stand on its own with a few, a few edits, a few changes, but it, it does lack something. If you don't watch all three, I can't say that about the Godfather part three. And I know that for a fact, because it's been, it's been about 20 years, as I said earlier, since I've seen the Godfather and the Godfather part two to the point that I barely remember them. And they had played no bearing in my viewership of this movie. Therefore, I watched it as if it was its own movie separate from any franchise. And it stood on its own. They showed you Fredo's death, which is the only thing... uh, The only thing... uh, Actively referenced in a previous movie... Otherwise, I mean, I, things were pretty much laid out. You had a mob family, somewhat broken up. You had the murder of uh, Fredo, which is referenced and shown, as a matter of fact, in a flashback. 
you have, and then every, it just sort of all proceeds from there. It's the story of this man trying to go legitimate and things go sideways in more ways than one. And it ends tragically. This daughter who he tried to keep out of the business, who has all of these charitable roles and is trying to do good things, ends up the victim of his lifetime of machinations. And even more tragically, you have this man who loves his family and was trying to do right by them and obviously made terrible choices, but those terrible choices caught up to him and he died alone. Okay, well, that's tragedy for you. So I just, I struggle with the, the amount of hate this movie gets when it's only getting it because people like it less than the first two or it isn't a, as well told a story as the first two certainly is acted. It, it's acted as well. It looks as well. So the defense will rest simply by saying it's a great movie. You just have to remember that, or you rather you have to forget that it's part three of a three part story and remember the fact that it's its own story. It's its own tale to tell with great actors and Sophia Coppola there to tell it. And may I remind you, Talia Shire was there too. Your last words, Mr. Prosecutor. See, kudos to the defense for pretty much making half my final point to me. Oh boy, no. this is an ongoing theme, isn't it? <laughs> Well, I'm supposed to answer to your criticisms of my case, aren't I? Well, Go ahead. Yes, I'm sorry. The thing is, this movie, as it currently exists, no, it doesn't have to exist that way. Because, to again make the point, the first two movies, yes, they were long. But they told a linear, flowing straightforward story with about as few meaningless divergences as possible. And that's why they're so easy to sit through for that running time. Now, there was an opportunity to possibly make this better. You sit down and you really thin out this this overly, needlessly complex story a little bit. You pare it down significantly so that you're not bloating the running time quite so much and saying so little about the evolution of the characters along the way. Because for all the political intrigue, for all the maneuvering, for all the scheming, for all the plotting, it still doesn't feel like it's advancing our attachment to this family all that much. It's, in my opinion, it's a more ruthless movie than the first two in terms of its characters' intentions. And yes, it's the, the the thread of Michael Corleone's redemption runs deeply through it, or rather it at least attempts to because, again, it keeps being buried in some of the, in some of the absurdities of the whole conspiracy plot from top to bottom. And that's to say nothing of, you know, as, as, the defense alluded to the fact that Michael's primary reason for insisting that Vincent cut off his cut off his relationship with Mary had nothing to do with the fact they're blood relatives. <laughs> you could and might I remind the might I remind the jury yuck. Yeah. By all means, remind them up and down. I'll agree with you on that one. Again, that's the biggest problem with it, is the fact 
that it's almost like the movie feels a duty to match the pre the running times of each of the previous two, otherwise it'll somehow be seen as inferior. Whereas really Francis Ford Coppola should have sat down with editors Barry Malkin, Walter Murch, and Lisa Fruchtman and just said, okay, how do we approach this from the standpoint of not necessarily fitting the movie to the running time, but fitting the running time to the best story we could possibly tell? Because it's, it's almost overwritten is what it is. It, it comes across almost like, uh, like a vanity project. It's, it would be like, and forgive me if this is a little bit of a, of a big literary reference for the route we typically go, it would be like if you sat down and you read an Elmore Leonard novel, and in the very next book that Leonard wrote, he instead basically wrote his equivalent to the Pickwick Papers. It would just feel entirely out of place. And I hate the fact that I have to look at a Francis Ford Coppola movie and say that it feels empty, but this feels empty. There's, there's so little to really sink your teeth into as far as really giving two shits what happens to most of these characters – Whereas you at least felt something in the first in the first two movies for just about all of the big principles uh, along the way, even right even right down to Fredo, you even felt just a brief little moment of conflict when you realized that yeah he did a dastardly unforgivable thing, but at the same time when you heard him out you kind of also didn't exactly entirely want him to die either. You knew it was happening, but and maybe it was just me that felt that way, but you also went, uh, let the idiot live, okay? Just let him go. This, it felt almost more like you could, like you could have told this with three consecutive hour-long episodes of an NBC crime drama. And it would have been just about the same effect. So, unfortunately, no, no, this is one case where, one case where a movie wasn't necessarily too big to fail. It was too big to exist in a state it was unleashed on on the world in it's not Manos Hands of Fate, it's not Birdemic, it's not it's not the room, but God knows, don't don't feel like you need to rush over to Netflix and watch it either. By all means, just watch the first two movies and leave it there. Because Somehow, attempt after attempt has been made over the years to try to continue the Corleone fam family saga in print, and not one of them has exactly panned out very well. And I think this movie was just a harbinger of that. It was the fact that he had one good – Mario Puzo had one good story and one good story in him, and Francis Ford Coppola managed to get two – Two immortal, immortal cinematic classics out of it, but three, man, he must have really needed the money. Prosecution rests. This this was a hard this was a hard episode for me. <laughs> God, woof. <laughs> I mean, I meant every word I said. Well, I meant every word I said. I, I, um, it's a very nice looking movie. It's well acted for the most part. It just, it's just, you're right. It, 
it's one of those movies where it, this was obviously no one was willing to say no, you know? Yeah. Let's have, you know, let's do a deer hunter thing where we spend two, uh, two hours out of the three running time uh, in this one setting. <laughs> you know? yeah. it's, let's let's it's, drag this out for a while. It, it, it's a two-hour movie that, for some reason, somebody decided needed almost three hours to tell its story. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Like, you know, I go back to the Patton Oswalt joke about directors and, and editors. You know, men are directors, women are editors. Um, and it's, it's an allusion to making kids. I don't want to do the same, the whole joke. If, go watch the Patton Oswalt specials on Netflix. You'll know what I'm talking about. But basically, what he's saying is, that you know you have these directors that just shoot all this film and it's just miles and miles and hours and hours of film and they're so impressed with their own filming what artists they are and then the women have to kick them out of the room and try to make a movie out of all this film they shot and i feel like in this one the editors were <laughs> were just you know it was it was a case of uh the phantom menace and lucas where no one was willing to say no and it all got thrown in there, and it was just like, yep, I've made a masterpiece. And what you have is Homer's car. Um, well, and I, I, give, I give it this very small modicum of credit because it did manage to work both Pope John Paul I's death in 1978 and the 1981-82 papal banking scandal into the plot. But still, when you look when you look at the entirety of kind of what you're expected to swallow, it's strange credulity so much more than, than everything that's going on in, in the first two movies. You know, Robert Winfrey loved the new Blade Runner movie, and I remember walking out of it going, what in the hell did I just watch? I had a very similar experience <laughs> with this. <laughs> just like, it was over, I'm like, well... That was the thing that I did. All right, now I've got to be creative on Thursday. Let's do this. Yeah, I mean, when I saw the first two movies, I mean, granted, even today, I would... Yeah, that popcorn curl stuck in my teeth. Um, <laughs> I, I could summarize fairly easily what the first two movies were about. This one, that's why I needed to watch it again, because I couldn't remember fuckity fuck all. Oh, yeah. And I, thank, the, thank the God of Wikipedia, because if I didn't have Wikipedia to, to, to tell me what the movie was about, there's no way I could have done the show tonight. I'd have been like, uh, oh, I know. Michael Corleone I is Catholic, and I Sophia mean, Coppola gets shot. To be perfectly honest, I saw this movie for the first time when I was, oh crap, how old was I? I think I was about 14, 15 years old, something like that. And I just, and that was also the last time I saw it because even then I just felt no urge to ever see this movie again. And I can I can try to flatly talk up the Academy Awards all that I want to, the nominations and everything, but the fact of the matter is there are, even a, there are a lot of Oscar-nominated movies that you see them once, and, okay, you want to throw out Simpson reference, references? One of my favorites. Let us never speak of the shortcut again. <laughs> You saw it, and you just instantly want to go, well, I can now say that I've seen it, and I can now yeah. say that I am never going to watch it again. Um, I, in fact, I'm considering some of those movies um, when, when we do The Summer of Sean this year. <laughs> hey, look at uh, that. Sit, yeah, sitting, sitting through a few of these movies that were big winners their year at the Academy Award – the awards and going, let's be real and let's take the artsy fartsy glasses off. Is this actually any fun to watch? <laughs> okay. I mean, my, 
my my dad has got a, has got a lifelong hard on for historical movies. Um, his his big thing. Get grab your drinks, folks. Whatever you got, because I'm about to make a wrestling reference. Um, when it came to movies, he was the equivalent to Cowboy Bill Watts booking uh, Mid South Wrestling. The whole idea was everything had to be as realistic as it possibly could. Everything had to be 100% positively believable. And if it wasn't, ah, well, that's not any good. Absolutely. This is why I did not grow up with much of, a, much of an affinity for all the nerdy things that I like now. Basically, all that stuff got made fun of on a regular basis in my household. Um, he absolutely loves Dances with Wolves. It, one, of, one, of his, one of his most favoritest movies ever. I think I tried to watch it once when I was in junior high, and I believe I got about an hour into it before I got bored. <laughs> I, I kind of want to give that another – I kind of want to give that – that's one of the ones I might give another try. Um, and there have been a number of other ones through the years where, oh, God, they got rave, re- they got rave reviews all up and down. Uh, oh, dear Lord. <laughs> The Passion of the Christ. Maybe we should watch that one. Oh Jesus! I saw that in the movies twice. The uh, twice? Oh my God! I once wasn't enough went, for me. Yeah, well, no, I went back for seconds. <laughs> I it was with two different groups of friends. I needed, I needed to have, uh, I needed, I needed to see it with one group, and then I just ended up seeing it with another. You know. That's a movie you could use as the punishment for losing a bet. <laughs> you, 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 you lose, you have to sit through The Passion of the Christ 100% sober. I've done it twice. We, we, yeah, but we may have to do that one because, man, you could, you could accuse Trey Parker and Matt Stone of being overly harsh and killing ants with a sledgehammer sometimes. That was one time their critique was damn near spot the fuck on <laughs> in terms of what they thought of it. Uh, we, could, we could watch that. We could watch Dances with Wolves. We could watch The English Patient. Um, God, The English Patient. There's another lose a bet movie. <laughs> um, so, so many that we could do. That we could do. Trying to figure um, out what month I, would be the best month to do the Passion of the Christ in because the summer of Sean goes from May to July. We have oh, May, the dates yeah. are unless I got to move them around again. The dates are May first, June fifth, and July third. And there's nothing else going on those weeks where I was like, hey, you know what goes with the Passion of the Christ? This does. Well, I'm I, I'm still building my I'm still building my lineup, but I've got some I've okay. got some doozies in mind. Um, okay. But 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 that's but that's what this is. It's one of those where you hear the rave reviews, you hear so much you hear so much about it. Everybody loved it. Academy Award nominations. It's so famous and blah 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 blah. And then. You sit there and watch it, and you kind of realize, huh, I could sit here, and I could probably quote Pulp Fiction to you in four different languages. Um, I've memorized just about every line of Clerks. I'll probably go to my grave remembering remembering those two movies and all the fun I've had watching them. This is just one time when I happened to watch a movie, and this was one of them. <laughs> I uh, I think that's a great place to end this. Um, it, this was a, <laughs> you know, there there's there just comes a point where it's like, yep, I, there's nothing else left to be said. So uh, the next on trial will be February 13th. It's another one of Sean's picks, and he picked Training Day. So that ought to be because uh, King Kong ain't got nothing on Sean. Um 
that'll be a fun one to do. I mean, it was it was a it was pretty well critically acclaimed. The one Denzel Washington won a uh, We're Sorry Oscar for, um, you know, which was not so much an Oscar achievement for Training Day it was it was a Lifetime Achievement Award um, given out for Training Day. Meanwhile, um, the rest of the plugs go something like this. Next week on Source Material is Saga Volume One. Alexis is is, 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 is Hena. No, not you, Alexis, Amazon Echo, the person, Alexis. Just, just, just. <laughs> um, will be joining me on TV party tonight for Pinky in the Brain, Volume 1. And then uh, on the Metal Hammer of Doom, provided we don't have another server issue. I've already explained that. Um, we'll be looking at the new Leaves Eyes album. So go ahead, Sean. Uh, what you got on your plate? Okay, well, first of all, everybody, thank you, as always, for listening live, for downloading, for contributing your feedback on Facebook, on Twitter, on anywhere on the socials where you happen to find myself or Mark. We appreciate it. We love this little Venn diagram intersection where we can both entertain ourselves and you at the same time. Uh, thank you, as always, to Jesse Starcher for one of the most wonderful, enthusiastic voiceover introductions anybody could have ever not asked for. He just did it, and it was awesome. Uh, I will always love that. That being said, as far as where you can find me and the rest of my machinations and monkey shines and offbeat shenanigans... For starters, you can follow me on Twitter at Comer Codex, where each day I'm eh, off and on, just whenever something happens to pop into my mind, whenever I happen to find something to retweet, often about video games, coyotes hockey, professional wrestling. Yeah, mostly those three things. Um, or occasionally whatever I happen to be cooking at the time. Uh, so that's always kind of fun. Speaking of which, that's also arguably one of the best places to find updates on my latest obsessive venture, and that is my Twitch TV channel. Uh, almost every single day, you can find me at twitch.tv slash comercodex, C-O-M-E-R-C-O-D-E-X, uh, streaming any number of games for about two to three hours from 6 p.m. Central Time onward. Uh, Saturday nights, I get together with a few friends and play some multiplayer Smite for a bit until we all just kind of get bored and wander off. It's a great time. That's part of what uh, Comer Codex is fast becoming kind of a content brand for all my podcasts and blogging and whatnot. That includes my brand new blog recently launched at thechairshot.com. I'm writing about professional wrestling again and loving every second of it. I'm now two installments in to Eight Match Tag. It's a weekly compendium published every Wednesday of eight matches, promos, segments, moments, what have you, called from the WWE Network libraries as an easy guide to both experienced wrestling fans and newbies to various performers, promotions, match types, uh, entire periods in the business. Uh, that goes up every Wednesday evening. You can also find me starting next week posting regular wrestling columns over at fpgnews.com. We tried to do our usual live coverage of the Royal Rumble this year, but unfortunately technical abilities put us right out of that. I'm working on possibly doing some future back pay-per-view reviews and, again, we're also going to get back to doing live coverage starting next month with WWE Elimination Chamber on February – hang on, let me look this up – Elimination Chamber 2018, which is February 25th. And that's going to be kicking off at 7 p.m. Central Time, and from then forward – I am hopefully going to be right back to regularly at least once a month doing live coverage for any of you who don't have anywhere from two and a half to four hours to sit in front of your computer, tablet, TV, phone, what have you, watching professional wrestling like I do. God, I just realized how sad that could potentially make me sound. 
Anyway, that's about everything that I've got going on right now. I'm in the process of getting back to my personal blog, comercodex.wordpress.com, but that's coming up in the fairly near future. Not quite there yet. But until we meet again, folks, I'm Sean. You're not. Never dull your colors for someone else's canvas, and have a lovely evening. Be on, be on the lookout for our on-trial T-shirts that say, and Talia Shire was there, too. I'm just kidding. I don't have a T-shirt. That's a Metal <laughs> Hammer of Doom joke. But if we did have a T-shirt store, we definitely need a shirt that says, and Talia Shire was there, too. Um, with that said, <laughs> all rise, please. Court is adjourned for the day. Be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>